0: We're here for a very special episode of The Intersection with Bennett Casper Williams, who used to work at Netflix. We're gonna spill the tea about what happened there and learn about what it takes to make truly excellent trans media culture and how to treat your trans employees well. We're so glad to have you here with us, enjoy. (laughs) You're here with Dr. Shannon Wong Lerner with the Intersection Diverse Folks Converse Season 2, Episode 10, Making Trans Positive Media, Bringing Our Personal Lives to Work and the Screen. And we're so happy to have with us Bennett Casper Williams, who is the serving as the Corporate Counsel for Labor Relations at Amazon Studios. He previously worked as Counsel for Labor Relations at Netflix, where he also served as Vice President of the Trans Employee Resource Group and Chair for the Trans Content Review Pod. So, so glad to have you, Bennett. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be able to speak with you.
0: I wonder, can you, can we define trans-positive, trans-accurate sure. media? I, I mean,
1: I think of trans-positive as being anything, I think of those two terms as related. Because to me, anything that's trans-positive is something that is accurate about the community. To me, as long as it's an accurate representation of some facet of, of our community or some some intersection of it, then that in itself is a positive. I don't think that trans media has to necessarily be like rosy or joyful or that trans people can't be the bad guy sometimes in order for it to be positive in terms sure. of a win for representation. I think as long as the representation is grounded in reality in some way and, and is connected to real people, like real trans people are a part of creating that representation, then that, that Stands as trans media, as far as I'm concerned.
0: And so, I thought we could just start talking about like why did we come up with this episode? Why did we think it was important to bring up this topic? And one reason why I sought you out is I saw that you had just left left Netflix, and I was like, ooh. And then you t- you wrote what your what your role was at that time, and I I really wanted to talk to you about what was going on there in terms of, especially with your work with labor relations and surrounding sort of like the subtext of, of what happened with The Closer and Dave Chappelle and some other media and was so happy that you just like messaged me back and said you were interested. So,
1: you know- I mean. It's, it's worth talking about. It's taken me a long time to be in a place where I feel like I really can talk about it from a holistic point of view because it was also incredibly emotional and I would even say traumatic in some ways. I don't know if having like work PTSD is a thing, but I definitely have been working through some, you know, professional uh, work-related anxiety as a result of my experience during that time and for anybody who's unfamiliar what we're talking about, a certain comedian whose name I don't like to say, so you said it already, Shannon, people can Google it, Netflix released a special in the fall of 2021 that was a comedy special that was, in my opinion, only in name. It was a 70 plus minute personal attestment to transphobia on screen, and it caused a huge fallout, not only in public, because I think up until that point, the public perception of Netflix in terms of like LGBTQ stuff generally, and then... Netflix was the company that also released Disclosure, which is one of the most amazing films about trans and non-binary people on screen ever. So I think people's perception of the kind of media that Netflix is putting out was really shaken by the release of that comedy special. And it also caused a lot of internal employee fallout. And I'll let you ask me more specific questions about that, but... There was a a lot going on externally and internally after that happened. I left the company several months later and not directly as a result of that, but it definitely weighed heavily in my calculus to go somewhere else. And so, yeah that's that's in a nutshell and people can google it because there's a lot more publicly available on google than i probably am <laughs> able to talk about contractually you can see it you can read it for yourself it was it was a whole mess
0: and this timing is really interesting that you're mentioning talking about having this you know like workplace PTSD that's directly connected to your transness, the commitment and the investment that you put into that role and your work there with the ERG. And our first conversation, because I chose to watch The Closer right before we met, right? and I hadn't really thought about, I hadn't really prepared myself for what that was going to be like, because I felt like if I was going to speak to you, even initially, I would need to actually watch the special because I had just seen clips that were handpicked and I was like, I need to actually know what happened. And then when we met, this was months ago, I felt like perhaps you weren't ready to talk about it because we were both kind of in a traumatized place in different ways. So it's interesting you bring that up because I feel like I'm glad that we had that time to kind of process and come back. You know, and then be in a place where we could talk not just about this. This is kind of the backdrop of what we're talking about. We kind of want to focus more on on other things and like solutions
1: like this happened. What can we learn from it? Right. It's it's more of a case study, I think, for how organizations and especially media companies. I feel like we can talk about like things that companies do generally with respect to trans employees and trans representation. But I think when you are a media company and so representation is not only internal within your organization, but also external, because that's literally the product you sell is representation. I think that there are different expectations. And I think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned from what happened that Lots of different businesses and organizations can take to heart, but specifically working in media, I think there's just like, there's a different playbook now. And I think, you know, what happened at Disney after the, the, it came out that they had supported all these politicians that were enacting the don't say gay legislation, the huge uproar with the employees there. There have been demonstrations and movements internally since the Netflix thing at other companies. And I think this is just the world we live in now is that you can expect when you're going to do something like that as a company and you're going to directly oppose the human rights of the people that work for you, people aren't going to be quiet about it anymore. It's done.
0: I love that. And I'm so glad that that's happening. This is a shift that we're seeing happen. And some of the things that I wanted to talk to you about as well is how do we define what makes up not just the trans positive and accurate media. I don't want to say trans positive because there's been plenty of sentimental things that will include trans characters, not as the main character, but then they kind of drop out or something happens to them, right? Or Or the
1: representation is so wacky. You're like, if you're a trans person or a non-binary person, you're like, that is not real.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's like the whole, you know, if you watch Disclosure, which again, I'm going to plug it. And if you're in the audience and you haven't watched it, you got to watch it because yes. that movie is full of examples of representation of trans people in media that are not positive because they're inaccurate and they're stereotypical. So, yeah, and just that because was, that was that was the,
0: that was the first, you know, documentary I saw where I also I wouldn't say I was traumatized like the other special, but it was it just it was my childhood right i saw all those films and shows 100% and you probably and so, didn't
1: think it was weird at the time
0: no cuz it was like in my it was in my subconscious it was like so same with you know with dave i'll just say dave is like <laughs> i i knew dave from my childhood and high school years and i had a different association with him to so to see him and even say i'm transphobic i'm transphobic like just very it's, unabashed yeah right?
1: it's very uh, jarring uh,
0: It was scary. It was really, uh, it was very, it felt fragmented to me and it was disturbing to me to see this person that had been beloved in my youth and high school years do this other thing, right? That is part of my community and what...
1: I think that's 100% accurate. And I... The reason why I don't like to mention him by name is that I think the problem is much bigger and deeper than him as a comedian, him as a person. I had I used to have a lot of respect for him as a comedian, and I think that he still has the capacity to touch on issues in a really profound and moving way, but I think he has lost his direction and lost his sense of self. And if you go back and start watching his material, even the, the specials that came out before the closer, you can see this thread start to emerge in his, in his comedy and in his persona. And now it's all he is. Yes. And I just think from a content standard, like if you're going to come for the trans community, at least do it in a way that is new or different or original or clever there's nothing interesting about um, anything that he has to say that we haven't all already heard before. And so the, like the platforming of this like very old school kind of like tired anti-trans sentiment was really, it was jarring and shocking. And as an employee, it made me feel unsafe. My mom
0: had this notebook that she was taking, she watches daytime shows all day. And mm-hmm. so like she'll take notes of things she wants to see with me or books she wants to read. It's very cute. And then I'll That's order cute. them for her on Amazon. And so that. yeah, she couldn't find it. she was she really she was like very intent on finding. It. I had taken it by mistake because I had confused it for mine. And when she opened it and started reading the shows, they were all trans shows. And so it like was definitely like a teary moment for me because this has been a process for my family, and so we watched anything is possible together, Love. which to me is like the perfect mom. <laughs> you know, like- I mean, it's the
1: kind of movie you would see with your mom. Yes. If it did, you know, if it didn't have a, an explicit trans storyline, there'd be a no brainer that it would be a cute movie to watch with your mom. And just because it has a trans storyline, doesn't change that. That's no, the- the it cool was thing about it.
0: It was so well done and it was so fun but accurate. And yes. I loved it. It was like it's to me, it's the first popular rom com type movie of that kind that didn't mess up. Yes. It was like everything felt right on. And yes. it it kept the style of rom com intact without it jeopardizing the representation of the trans characters. I
1: think, I mean, yes, agree. And I think that is wholly because that film involved trans people from top to bottom. Which I think is just anytime you're going to start telling stories from a a community that you're not immediately a part of, especially in 2022, in, in the information age, when it's really easy to just reach out and touch someone to get in contact, there's no excuse to not do more research and get more people involved and make it authentic. We don't have to guess about who trans people are or what their lives are like, or what kind of situations they might get into that are situationally funny. Like we don't have to guess about that anymore because we can actually speak to and see and be around trans people. And it's not that hard. So and I, I wonder, feel like, like,
0: is that scary for executives or the people in charge? Cause you know, I, I'm I'm hopefully going to follow up this talk with you with Scott Turner Schofield, who's the main trans advisor for Euphoria, yes. which I also watched the whole thing before you and I met because I I was a little embarrassed. I didn't tell you, but you were kept mentioning Euphoria, and I was like, I haven't seen it yet. I hadn't
1: see well, seen one I episode,
0: and I was sort insane. of embarrassed. Like I'm a bad trans media person. No, I haven't watched a show. It's,
1: it's not for every like the subject matter. Of it Euphoria. was intense. incredibly heavy. So there it's got a lot of trigger warnings that you can associate with it but i think the thing that i love about it and that trans audiences love so much about it is that it's not it's not a gloss over like these are real yes. people these are three-dimensional people with three-dimensional problems i love the the new hulu remake of hellraiser that has jamie clayton playing the like the main baddie like yes cast a yes. trans woman i have
0: I haven't to, seen play,
1: a to play a horror movie like Monster, please do because we're not just – trans people aren't just here to be like secret romantic side pieces and sex workers and all of these tropes. Like trans people can be the villain and the boss at school and the, you know, the popular kid and also a mogul. Like put us everywhere because sure. we existed in those roles in real life, but also like – show some dimension. We have dimension.
0: The thing I loved about Euphoria, and I didn't watch it for a long time because people would say it had so much trauma in it, and I knew I would be triggered. So I was like, I just waited a long time. But then when you and I started talking, you mentioned, I was like, I have to see this show. I watched the whole show since the time we talked till now. And uh, the thing that I loved about that show is queerness and, in a sense, transness touches every single character of that show. It's the only show that I know of that the whole show is trans. The whole show is queer. Even if some characters uh, identify as heterosexual, like the son character, right? He has been touched by queerness and transness. And in a sense, he is queer, even though yeah. he presents himself another way. And, and then his father is even more so. We know people like this. We know people who were closeted until their 40s and did a lot of bad shit before yep. then because they were they were living two separate lives. The way they showed it, the accuracy and the grittiness was hard to watch, but it was also oh. like, it's important to show those characters too. Yes. And so I, I'm still blown away by the show and I can't wait to really delve in with Scott to ask him like, how did you, set this up like what was this like for you to do this i see it as this opus we haven't even gotten to the end of it yet but every single Mm. show blew me it was like it was like game of thrones but for queer people that's how i saw this show and
1: i it's amazing how much they've woven into it but i think you're right that these are real people's stories it's perhaps a collection of the underside of like queer and trans stories or the 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 buds the emerging sort of threads and seeds of those things that we all like if you're in the community you really identify with because we've all gone through or know somebody who's gone through those kinds of Trials and tribulations to self-real... I mean, it's also a show about high schoolers. So (laughs) that's also just high school is that you go through a lot of like really unfortunate, ugly stuff at that time in your life. And I know, you know, many people, whether they end up self-realizing as queer or trans at some point, probably can look back and look at a younger version of themselves and go, ooh, I used to think and say and do some like yucky, problematic things. Completely. It's gross. It's I think euphoria, part of what makes it so disturbing is that so many of us can look back and go like.
0: (laughs) I know that, I mean, I know those stories, you know? We know those people, either we were them or our good friends were them or people we knew were them, right? Yep.
1: Or we were bullied by people like them.
0: Well, and then that's the interesting thing is too, is that bully was touched by homophobia intergenerationally and that that even though it's about high school, there is an intergenerational aspect to it that I think also has been missing in these shows.
1: Yes, yes. I look forward to more nuanced storytelling about the queer community in general that takes on some of those layers. An example of sort of generational storylines that I really love currently is the reboot of A League of Their Own. i think the writing like talk about a show where all of it is kind of queer and all of it is kind of genderqueer or trans that show is also an incredible example it's like i don't know people a lot of critics think that it's too far away from the original but i think of it and the original as telling the same story but from different sides of the coin because the original told the whitewashed sort of heterosexual version of that reality and this show is telling the you know everybody but that version of the same story it's just the same reality from a different point of view but i think the way that they have woven in a lot of the like historical roots of our modern sort of understanding of queerness and transness is incredible and It's a testament, again, to the fact that it's got queer and trans people a part of the whole show, from soup to nuts.
0: And this is historical. I did a lot of ethnographic work when I was doing my my master's and my doctorate, and it's really difficult to do ethnographic work that's historical of marginalized communities that purposefully have been left out of records. You have to look for what's missing, and then you have to... Sometimes you have to derive something based on what's not there. Yeah. And so I feel like League of Their Own did a really good job of that. I don't know the archival part and research part of that show, but I also felt that realness. It's definitely more of a feel good, but there's definitely a lot of really it, hard things that are happening too. I felt that realness like with Euphoria, but in it a felt believable.
1: Yes yeah i think that's true i think that's exactly true or exactly right is that we have to really we're challenged to really have to use our imaginations when we think about what life for queer and trans people looked like in the past because unless unless you're talking about a, a period in time where scholars have done the delicate work of really going back and recreating those realities um absent that kind of a resource you just have to use your imagination and think about like, well, what do we do now? And what is a what is a way that we can take that backwards a few steps and make it fit with what probably was real?
0: And I think what's most important is not like real versus fake or something like that. What's most important is that we can see ourselves in these historical narratives where we have been left out or made invisible or things yep. like you said, have been whitewashed. Uh, and so this idea that we can see ourselves back there that gives us our, our that lineage and to feel more grounded
1: you know I, I've been talking it's, a lot about but it's like unbelievable because dis- like we don't have that
0: yeah we don't have like- it and I, I was talking recently about dissociation and how mm-hmm. a friend of mine who's trans an older trans masculine man was saying that when I was realizing I was like I think I've been dissociated (laughs) almost my whole life because I've been closeted a lot of my life as an adult. And he was like, dissociation is endemic to queerness and especially transness. hundred percent. But these these stories, completing it, to me, that grounds me. Even though it's media and people say stuff about technology and media that it's not healthy and
1: you should just exercise all the time. Like,
0: no, (laughs) this is really important too.
1: (laughs) I think... I think people who say that are people who probably haven't had the reality of not being able to see themselves in history. Yes. Like, that's a very, that is a very, like, you know, whitewashed sort of cisnormative, heterosexual, like heteronormative thing to say, because people who understand what it's like to be able to go like, huh, I don't know what a story set in the 50s looks like for a transmasculine individual. I don't. I don't. I can try to look some people up and and kind of piece one together myself, but I've never seen it represented. Whereas anybody and their mom would be like, "Oh, you know, I could think about Back to the Future. Like that's probably what oh, what gosh. my you know." Sure. But like like you have this romanticized idea of like what these different periods in time look like, and that's very easy to lean into when you're straight and when you're cis. And also when you're white, if you're looking at stories told by Hollywood, right?
0: Definitely.
1: But when you're anything but that, you're like, oh, I've always just had to appreciate these movies and try to like shoehorn myself into some kind of character. Like my biggest character I could identify with when I was a kid was Tatum O'Neill's character from The Bad News Bears and yes. she was just oh, like love that. a rough and tumble little tom girl but to me i was like that was the closest representation of my like gender queerness and sort of contrary being contrary to whatever was expected of me that was the only version of that that i saw when i wasn't anything like that person in reality but that was as close as i could get And that's sad. Like, everybody should grow up being able to see somebody or something like themselves.
0: He was a complete character. It's funny because I connected to that. I forgot about that movie forever, but I remember really connecting to that character. I really love this conversation culturally about uh, trans positive and accurate media. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the back end of this and what you've experienced that none of us really know about. When I think about the way you described how Netflix started out in terms of the Google Doc that they had, which you can fill this in a little more, but from what you described, it was like the type of transparency that you're saying that Amazon Studios has now. But it was even more where people of people who worked at Netflix of any rank could communicate with. The executives, the people in charge, and they would respond, and there was this open yep. conversation. It sounds very ideal and unrealistic that that would happen. It's like a almost sounds like a movie or something. Well, like saying so, that, but, is, but, the but thing where was, they is, ended, where they ended up, that's what makes totally me just think opposite. of what you're talking about. Like, how did, did they overpromise? Did were they just too idealistic, and then they didn't really think through what they were doing? What happened?
1: I think so you're you're so you're all of the above is right i think the short answer is that they created a culture where they not only hired like professed to hire the most excellent people in the room right that was a part of the netflix culture memo uh from its inception was that They only look for excellence and they only hire the best people in the room. In addition to that, they had established a work culture that basically said, if you see something, say something. Like everybody who works here has a responsibility to think about them as being in ownership of this company and in ownership of what we are doing. And so we all have the responsibility to not only be excellent at what we do, but to be open about um, voicing concerns or things that could potentially be problematic so that we can work through those and only deliver the best thing possible. And that was something that um, especially somebody coming from corporate legal practice where transparency is like the opposite of what happens there. It was incredibly inspiring to me to think that I could do my normal day job and still exist in a place where if at any given time I as a trans person or as a queer person saw something that was counter to the community or that I didn't think was going to be in our best interest that I was empowered to be able to say something about it. And to know that my opinion and my experience and my judgment would be taken seriously because I was an excellent colleague who was in the room, right? You've already screened me for excellence and my judgment and my skill set. So what comes with that is also trusting that when I tell you this is wrong that you listen and that you take that to heart. And I think where it all broke down around the closer was just that when people in the community and people who were allies or who weren't a part of the community, but who also saw how problematic it was, when people started speaking up, I think ultimately it was just that the people at the top didn't agree with the sentiment that it was problematic. And so the fact that they didn't agree with the sentiment that it was problematic became an easy place for them to turn to everybody and say, this is just a you opinion. This is just the opinion of the community. This is just a trans problem. It's our it's our best performing piece of comedy on the series. So obviously you're wrong. And <clears throat> when that was the initial response to everybody's sort of shock and dismay and i say everybody because i mean the outcry against the material was mm-hmm. widespread it was thousands of people it was not just the trans folks and the trans erg it was lots of people and the response to that initial outcry of like whoa this is not okay when it was you know this is just a new problem deal with it Then it became a, oh, no, then people got mad aside from the content being terrible because they felt like all of our judgments about this and what went wrong and wanting explanations of like who thought that this was okay, And why do we have a policy of allowing people to just say, you know, if the policy is they get to say whatever they want, then why is that the policy? Like it spawned all of these questions from us who worked there, who really wanted to figure out how that happened, um, the response was just to shut it down. And all of those channels of communication and all the things that have been established to really source that feedback from employees went away. And I think the most telling thing is that Netflix rewrote its culture memo um, you know, six months or so after this all went down to eliminate the points that explicitly invite the kind of feedback that used to be there and the new sentiment is essentially if you don't like what we do there are lots of other places for you to work and i think that's like that was the most dramatic i mean at least they're honest about it now but that was kind of the response we got from the beginning which is why i think why people were so shocked because it's like very opposite from what we were promised
0: to me this is you know this is so fascinating because it makes me think of different spaces where people f- are trying to feel safe and establish themselves. The type of trust and confidence and morale, and even like building up people within the company at Netflix and how that was broken down from this like egalitarian democracy, you know, even like socialist democracy to more of like a oligarchy or like, now it's like actually everything we said is false. So. It makes me think of so many different things, you know, like mentorships where a mentor takes a young person under their wing and builds them up and they become this thing through that relationship and then they they hit on them. They're like, oh, I actually just want to have sex with you. <laughs> you know, like I've heard things and then they're devastated, right? Yeah. So being part of an any type of relationship where there is that type of trust and community and a structure that holds it all together, and then to just demolish it when basically the shit comes down, <laughs> right? It's like the test of any relationship, beginning of a relationship, there's that period where things are very idealistic. It's like, oh no, we come from two different backgrounds and we have different values, but this is gonna work out. We love each other, and there's this <laughs> there's right, there's this, there's this like delusion that it's going to work out, and there's like trust that's built, and then and then something real happens and it all, that's kind of what it reminds me of. It also reminds me of, you know, just being in social media spaces and how there their being a social agreement on how we're going to treat one another and that we're going to have respect and integrity. Recently, I've been having this happen where I didn't realize what people's thresholds were and, and some of their prejudices around anti-Semitism, around transphobia, and it's ugly. Yep. And to me, I'm like, oh, so you like it when I talk about this stuff, but you don't like it to when I talk about these other things. And that social agreement, and then they're posting things, just it reminds me of the, the closer, they're posting things that are highly transphobic or anti-Semitic, And some people are chiming in, some people are saying it's not okay. And for some reason they're allowed to keep posting. And uh, that social agreement has been broken. So yep. it, it really makes me think about the excellence of some of these programs we're talking about, what it really, what it really requires. Because like, was disclosure just a fluke? I'm not saying uh, that about Sam Fader. Uh, the, I, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that like, now their culture has changed to where it seems like it might be difficult to get a, a trans director on board to produce something like that. I mean,
1: it's going to be the, so you were absolutely right that the damage from the breakdown that happened was far more widespread than anything related to just the trans community or how the trans community was treated, um, by the company in the wake of that, like the trust that was broken down from your everyday run of the mill employee. I think, I think it, it impacted far more people. Um, and I think that, that, frankly, the analogy I used when it happened was that like, it's like when you drop a rock in a body of water, and it's gonna ripple, but you never really know when you drop it, like how far it's gonna go, right, or what's gonna happen. And I think that was what happened was, they dropped the rock in the water and had no idea like how lasting or widespread the, um, the impact would be. And as the employee, it, feel, it felt very much like living in two different realities. It was like everything you thought was true suddenly became eroded over the course of just, it, it took just days to break down what it had taken years to build. And I mm. think that's what happens when you don't really fully put the things that you're you're building when you don't really think about what committing to those things means when it comes to things that you may not agree with i think it's very easy for for companies especially media companies to say like oh well you know we're going to only commit to excellence and no prejudice and like no racism and that and that and that until somebody does something that that you in your own judgment as a biased human because of your intersectional identities, whatever they may be, when it's something that you particularly don't find problematic, that other people are telling you, yes, this is problematic. If you're not prepared in those situations to really listen and commit to listening and commit to taking other people's advice and maybe stepping in other people's shoes, unless you can commit to that bit, then don't do any of the first part because at some point in time you're going to run into a situation where you're going to make a decision that erodes all of it like you have to really be open to hearing and receiving feedback that you may not agree with and thinking about how that might be right in spite of the fact that you don't agree with it and if if leadership if businesses are not prepared to do that then don't pretend like you do because the second it happens it's You know, it's going to be like in The Wizard of Oz when they pull the curtain back and it's like, oh, it's really been like, you know, we actually don't care about transphobia and we're mildly transphobic ourselves. Uh, You know, that's going to be what's behind the curtain. When I say it felt like unsafe at Netflix, luckily we were in the pandemic, so we weren't actually like all in the building together, but it really felt to me like, oh, so people that I've been working with all this time, that I've had good conversations with, that I think are good people and that I think are people who respect me, actually think that this shit is funny. Yes. And not only think that it's funny, but also can't see how it could potentially be violent or, you know, lead to violence or any of these things that I'm telling. Not only do they think it's funny, but they're unwilling to listen to me when I'm saying this is like not this okay. Is, it's not okay. Okay. Then you're like, well, am I really safe here? If I had been made to be in the building, I'm not sure I would have felt safe because suddenly you're like, who in this room with me actually agrees with this bullshit? Because I don't want to be. That's not a place I want to be in.
0: And it makes me think of like the most marginalized of us, you know, whether like you know, during George Floyd's murder came out like, oh wow, now America realizes how much like black people have been brutalized and targeted and harassed and murdered by the police and other people and gotten away with it, right? It's like, oh, we didn't know that. (laughs) And then thinking about trans people of color and and trans people and how they've been treated. Um, But the point that I was going to make is it's even more pertinent and important, like with the Netflix situation, I totally understand what you're saying about, you know, there's that ripple effect, you know, when someone's made to feel unsafe in the space where they work, but it's even more so if it's a media company, I had mentioned social media, but to me, media is much more powerful. Yes. And so not only are you having the effect on your employees whom you brought in to be like on equal terms, and to build up and make feel safe and that this is a totally inclusive, egalitarian space. But now you are broadcasting this, streaming this out so that the people who watch who are now laughing and making it okay for this behavior, could that ripple effect goes to someone who commits violence or harassment or abuse? It makes me think of like Donald Trump and all the crap that he's caused across multiple marginalized communities, whether they're Asian American, trans,
1: you know, gay, basically everyone, right? But like, don't, like there's, there's making me feel unsafe at work within work is one thing, but also making it less safe for me to walk outside of work as well. That's a whole different ball of wax, right? Like I can deal with internal sort of, Transphobic or at least like trans ignorant things and address those on my own like that's what i think ergs are great at and that's why i choose to be involved in them because i think you can you can change those things but when when a company is also taking that bs and then making my life more difficult outside of work that's not okay and you're 100 right that the brunt of all of all of the anti-transness always falls to trans people of color because intersectionality would put them at the most at risk just in any given situation in our country. But specifically when it comes to people um, interpreting anti-trans sort of climate and projecting it into personal anti-trans violence. Yes, it's going to be sub- our siblings of color who are the most at risk. The thing that I thought was the wildest about The Closer as a special was that it made it seem like black and brown trans people just don't exist at all um Mm. dave Chappelle characterized transness as something that only white people experience which not only erases an entire segment of this population but also erases the most vulnerable the most violent like the the community that has the most violence perpetuated against it erase that entire community which i think only paves the way for people who listen to that kind of nonsense to perpetuate violence against people they see in real life because they think oh if you're black and trans then you like we have to beat the trans out of you because no black people are trans and it's ridiculous. It's not it's not accurate. And it's also like not comedy. Remind you, this was supposed to be a comedy special. Like, like me, it was like
0: we had talked so about wild. it as like a therapy session. It felt like he was really grappling with something internally in himself, and doing and a show about it. And you can Google
1: that too, because there's there's tea out there about. And I say tea, obviously, I am appropriating the the black, the black queer vernacular. But if you want to see the tea, go to Google and figure out why Dave Chappelle might be so fixated on the trans community. It's very personal, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Um, no it's just the whole the whole thing was so was so wild and and i actually had the experience of a colleague of mine who is a trans volunteer in her community um with young people went to an event for trans youth and there were protesters outside the event this is two weeks after the chappelle special launched and there were protesters who were yelling jokes from the special at my friend and the trans youth that were entering and exiting this venue and she as an employee at netflix who was also a trans woman was like this is this is the violence from the work that has come out of my company literally coming full circle and it was at the same time that the company was saying that Media doesn't spawn any sort of real world consequences for people, which was like, so yeah, all of that happening at the same time was incredibly destabilizing and felt extremely unsafe.
0: That lack of recognition of intersectionality is actually part of this faction I was talking about online that I didn't realize was out there of saying it was actually almost exactly what Dave had said, because it it was like. LGBTQ versus the black community right jewish people who are all in power and controlling everything as compared to the black community i'm like okay but who is the black community who is the jewish community and who is the asian american community and the lgbtq like are you talk what are you talking about and you know that they're and i my point was like i'm jewish i'm queer you know I'm gender non-conforming or under the umbrella of trans that I don't identify. I'm part of all of this, right? I'm Asian American and I don't relate to anything you're saying. And then the comment was like, oh, well, you're like, and people like you are sort of of the subculture. And I'm like, no, we're actually not underground. We're just walking (laughs) walking around (laughs) with you above ground. We exist. We're here. And what you're saying is not considering the most marginalized of us right i think
1: not considering not considering marginalized identities but also i think what you're saying is accurate is that we're not actually all that marginalized in reality i think that's one of the problems i have with sort of like cis white heteronormative storylines being the default in media is that that's not the reality even statistically anymore of like the population of the United States, for example. It is not a majority white, majority cis, majority straight. Like that's just not who we are anymore. If you look at, for example, people under the age of 30, mm-hmm. the percentages of cis identity in that in that subset are way far greater i mean it's it's a totally different proportion and so to create this like media reality that we live in a mostly white mostly straight mostly cis world is not even true anymore it was at one point in time but it's not even true anymore and so we have to start realizing that like what we as an individual thinks is reality and is the norm we have to cross check that against like the facts <laughs> and be willing to have other people tell us like no actually you're kind of outnumbered in this way or that way and that's not the way it is like you have to be open to hearing that because if you're not you're always just going to be putting out stuff that's bi- that's like biased in one way or another and we
0: can think of the media as you know, even being part of that, like anything is possible, right? Where there is a trans black woman who is like just living a regular life. So those old tropes of like, you know, I don't know, getting something nasty on her locker, you know, something like bullying. It's actually not even really that. I mean, there is the friend who becomes like that, but it's very complex. It's not like, yeah. There's the white cis jocks, and then there's the trans person who's getting bullied or something.
1: It's, yeah, we've retired some of those those tropes. And actually the more young people I meet who are actually of that age group and in those realities, the more like queer friendly and trans friendly their realities are becoming. Like, with every passing year, it's becoming less of a big deal to be a queer person or a gender non yes. person or a trans person or a non binary person amongst the population of young people. And that is so inspiring. I think that media companies need to actually recognize that. Like, study it, recognize it, believe it, embody it and start making stuff that speaks to broader audiences because there are untapped groups of people who have yet to see their actual reality reflected up that way because that reality hasn't trickled up yet to the older people in charge and it needs to.
0: And it seems like that also says something about, you know, transness, queerness as yes, identity, but not all of who we are, which I think is a really important part of this narrative because that's when the stereotypes come in.
1: Yes. Well, and it's just becoming something that's so much more, as it becomes more more normalized and more accepted and people are more out about being trans and being non-binary, being queer, you start to realize that, yes, that is just one part of who they are. And people can be open about their full, like the full dimension of themselves. The more of us there are, the more you realize that there is no such thing as one kind of non-binary person, one kind of queer person, one kind of trans person. We are all incredibly different and all lead incredibly different lives and also arrive at our understandings of our gender identity and or sexuality in different ways. And so you can't, like the stereotypes are just not accurate. You can't, You can't capture us in that way.
0: I love that. One of the last shows we did was called Everyone is Neuroqueer. And the challenge that the guest was making was like this idea of neurotypical, this idea of of cis and het as like the norm, the starting place, all of that. It needs to just kind of go away, right? And I think that's also kind of what we're saying right now, too. Yeah
1: yeah it is it's true is that it needs to we need to stop thinking of that as a default because I think we're realizing that not only was that not ever it's never been the case um it's certainly not the case now.
0: I want to just ask you a couple more questions sure. uh, and then I think we can close the podcast so I would really love what is the most powerful impact that you hope for the future with your work surrounding corporate culture and your support for trans and queer media how and I'm thinking like really, sky's the limit is like how would you like to see this evolve this uh trans positive and accurate media or just trans positive media
1: i mean my the thing that i would love to see happen eventually is that we get people like scott turner working on projects across all different outlets, all different levels. Like, it doesn't have to be a story about trans people for there to be value in trans people participating in crafting that story, um, and that goes true of all of, of all sort of marginalized identities. It doesn't have to be a story about queer people for there to be value in asking queer people what they what they could lend to the story, because I think I think that there's just so much there that we can offer, even to experiences that aren't our own, but but obviously to experiences that are about us. Like, as a baseline, it should be a no-brainer that if you're going to write something about us, that you involve us in in as many aspects as possible of that storytelling. I would love to see that just be accepted, baseline, common practice, not something we have to advocate for.
0: And ways that are integrated, too, and not segregated. Because Scott has talked about that. Scott's like... I am trans, but like right now I'm focused on just being an actor. Like yeah. being trans is a given. It doesn't have to be the the headlining thing about yes, me, like, right? Don't
1: hire me just because you need a trans actor. Hire yes. me because you need an actor. I just also yes. happen to be trans. I mean, that's the reality I would love to get to, is that like baseline we should be involving trans people in trans stories and casting trans people to play trans people full stop idealistically not only that but we would have trans people playing all kinds of people their gender identity you know irregardless and we would have trans people involved in telling those stories even ones that don't belong to this community that's what should happen because i think until you see the value in getting a whole bunch of different folks together to tell one story um, whether it's a part of their community or not, like, it we're always going to be stuck with this sort of, like, limited, limited. Uh, two-dimensional kind of representation.
0: And limited narrative and just everything. Yeah. It's just not very
1: good, it's right? Variety, variety is the spice of life. And I think there are a lot of... um truisms and common threads in the trans experience that narrate or, or, or that that jive with all kinds of experiences from other identities that you there will be commonality people will identify with it people will connect with it it's just about getting the people the right people in the room to tell that story so that you can draw those commonalities out and i think the stories that we've seen that really seem to resonate with like lots of intersections of people are the stories that are crafted by those kinds of teams that really see the value in bringing together all those different voices
0: That's great. I would love to hear, this is the final question, is just your takeaway from the podcast today. What is something you're going to just like walk away with that is like sort of the main impact that this conversation had on you?
1: I mean, this conversation is just reaffirming to me that this work still needs to be done and that this work needs to be talked about and that we need to encourage We need to continue having conversations that encourage people to think about who's not in the room and who needs to be in the room. i sometimes it's easy in your immediate environment to lose sight to to think like oh well it's really great where i am and so to think like because it's really great where i am it's probably like that elsewhere too it's nice to check back in with the greater conversation and go oh no we still need to be talking yes we still need to be talking about this because it is actually still an issue um I'm very lucky that I have moved to an environment that I feel like is very affirming of my experience as a queer and a trans person and an environment that values that experience that I bring to the table. So it's nice for me to remember that like, oh, yes, I do still need to keep advocating though, because, you know, it's my experience is not everyone's experience, um, but also there's still so much good to be done in the world. And there's so many stories that still need to be told.
0: I'm so glad that you're out there in the way that you are and you have the position that you do and that you came here to speak with us. Yes. Uh, I said I only had two questions. I have one more, but it's not really a question. It's more like a follow-up. I know people who are just kind of taking the LGBTQ off or trying to shift gears because the climate is getting so um, inflammatory and uh, violent and so on. So there's one belief that you just drop out and there's another belief or you tone down. There's another belief you get more vocal. Uh, That's what this conversation has brought up for me and my takeaway is like being more vocal. When you see something that really bothers you and is against trans people or any group, say something, don't be scared and don't back down to those people. Um, So I'm really curious about what you think of that in terms of advice you have for us coming from specifically the position and experiences you've had with Netflix and then coming over to uh, Amazon Studios and with the work you do with the ERGs uh, and media, right? Yeah. (laughs) Is like at our level where we're at, you're at a different level, you're doing different things. But at our level where we're at, the impact we can have in that ripple effect, what can we do? Because this conversation has changed my mind because that fear made me feel like retreating.
1: I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a bunch of things because, one, you always have to take care of yourself. So if you're mm-hmm. feeling immediately unsafe, then disengage. Same thing goes for if you are somebody who tends to take on a lot of emotional labor. Always, always, always give yourself permission to step away first if it feels overwhelming, unsafe or like it's affecting your your health or your family or your interpersonal relationships because you 100% have to take care of yourself in order to continue doing the work that you can do for the community when you're at your best right so keep yourself at your best first so that you can stay in operation because what always happens, not always, but what tends to happen is that you take on too much and then you get burnt out and crash and burn and you leave yourself with a lot of guilt feeling like, oh, but I should still be doing X, Y, and Z. Don't worry about it. That I think if you are a person who has privilege relative to the scenario you're in because privilege is all kind of relative depending Mm -hmm. on (laughs) depending on who's around you your intersections of your where your privilege might stand out shifts Um, if you were in a situation where you have privilege relative to others so you're a cis person and there are a bunch of cis people being transphobic for example or you're a white person and there are a bunch of white people being racist you know for example if you are in a situation where you safe where you have privilege and you have the safety to be able to do something, say something. Because the power of of somebody who is a bigot hearing somebody who they think is like them, mm-hmm. challenging that and saying, actually, we are different. Yeah. Because although we may look the same or have the same background or the same whatever, my belief is. Da, 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 da. until for some people until they get challenged by somebody that would otherwise look and and seem just like they are they're not going to ever realize it and those are some of the conversations that can be the most effective because you can take a very curious um perspective and say like well that's not been my experience with the trans community like mm-hmm. you know what experiences personally have you had they haven't had Right. Sure. So like if people are being transphobic, there are some lines of inquiry you can engage in that are non threatening, that are mm-hmm. but but are challenging and that you can exercise that privilege and say, you know, tell me why you think that. Tell me what your experience has been. That's not been my experience, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so yes, like if you have the ability to do that advocacy, do it. Like but that's kind of always and I, I kind really of let people know when I enter spaces to like, this is this is something that I do. And so if you don't yes. want me to say something, then don't have me here. <laughs> don't don't invite me to this party if you don't want somebody who's going to say something if they see something wrong, because I I can't help myself. Um, it, I
0: just can't. it's really it's really good that you're bringing this up because it makes me think about like why allyship is so important.
1: Yes. Well, that was going to be my second point is that if you are somebody who finds yourself always doing the work, lean on your allies more. This is a lesson that I am actively trying to put into practice in terms of organizing the new trans ERG at Amazon, for example. We are a community of trans folks doing that, but we have some allies among the group that are getting this off the ground and learning to to lean to them and say, you know what, here's something I would like you to do because yes, I could do it, but I have a million other things to do too. Let me lean on you to do this bit for me and just calling people into that conversation because I think... Folks love to say that they are an ally and to brand mm-hmm. themselves as an ally. And so I'm committed to starting to take people up on that and say I like, okay, that. if you are an ally, then I'm going to ask you to do this thing. And I'm going to expect that you either say, yes, I will, or yes, I will find somebody who will. Right? And it kind and of makes me think of, the,
0: of your Netflix experience because they had set up this wonderful structure, that infrastructure. And then when it came down to testing how strong it was it kind of collapsed right and yep. so if someone's uh, says something you know that's their promise that's their perf- the performative aspects like okay well now let's yeah to
1: do something and see let's what do happens the, do the work and and so far my experience in sending the like delegating those tasks and making those asks, the the response has been overwhelmingly positive. That's so wonderful. I know those of us who do a lot of work are used to having to do it all ourselves because we think, oh, if we ask people to do this, they won't do it or they'll be mad at me for asking them to do something or they'll be inconvenienced or whatever. Sure. Don't listen to any of those voices because my experience has been that people are willing to put their allyship into practice i wish that we didn't have to ask like that's the that's the goal is to not have to ask but at least so far the asking has all yielded successful results and so just try to let you know let go and and make some requests and test them and if they're not there then that's a whole you know it's a whole different set of problems that you have to deal with but start you know, start taking people at their work and and ask them to do the work.
0: That's great. I think that's wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Bennett, for just being here and, you know, doing, having this episode with us. I want to just close out our podcast which is the Intersection Diverse Folks Converse. You've been here with Dr. Shannon Wong-Lerner and Bennett Casper-Williams. And the title of our episode was Making Trans Positive Media, Bringing Our Personal Lives to Work in the Screen. This has been season two, episode 10. I actually want to say one last thing, and that's that the intersection is, uh, it's all created in-house we don't have any sponsors because i wanted to keep the creative control within myself and my guests uh bennett myself no one is paid for this but we do have a gofundme that helps with production costs because that is also all in-house we don't have a sponsor we're just very small and you know we want to keep bringing this programming to you so if you can help us there's going to be a gofundme link right. uh, It should be coming up actually as I'm talking, but it'll also be in the uh, in the description for for YouTube and for all of your podcast platforms. Please uh, donate to us. Even if it's just a little bit, it really helps. So thank you again. And we'll see you soon. Bye.
1: Thank you so much. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today for The Intersection, this very special episode with Bennett Casper Williams, all about transmedia culture and how to treat your trans employees. These programs are not supported by some huge fund that something like Netflix or HBO Max or Amazon Studios has. I just create it on my own with a very small production team. I'd love it if you liked what you heard and saw today to if you consider donating something just to help us keep going and so we can keep bringing these programs to you. I'm bringing community leaders to us and different inside voices so that we can learn about what's actually going on and how we're affected as a community, in society, as individuals. So if you could help us with that project just to keep this going and so we can keep supporting all of you, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Mm